again. Um, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what we're going to be doing today, I, I'm going to start a sermon series. It's not going to be every time I'm up here, but it's going to be sprinkled in. Um, what I'm doing is I'm starting a series called Why It Matters. And what I want to do is I want to look at certain beliefs that we as Christians believe and then dig into them a little bit and see why it matters that we believe this. What happens if we lose this? What happens if we don't believe this? What happens when the world around us presses in on us to kind of call us to question these beliefs? Um, so what I'm going to do, it's not, like I said, it's not going to be every time. It's just going to be every once in a while when I'm up here. Today we're going to start with creation. Um, but the reason I'm doing this is in Matthew 22, there's a series of four exchanges that Jesus has with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they go back and forth. And the fourth time that they come to Jesus, they send a lawyer. And what the lawyer says in Matthew 22, verses 34 through, through 38, he says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, being Jesus, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. Far too often I know for myself, and possibly true for some of us, we don't get that with our mind part very well. We've grown up in the church, we're in the church, we hear this all our life, and it just becomes kind of second nature to us. It's things that we hear, it's things that we've always heard, and we don't really think about it. Now, I know that's a blanket statement, and if it's not true of you, I'm sorry that I just said it, but I know for myself there's times where I read through Scripture and I just, yeah, that makes sense. I read it and I keep going, and I don't think about what that means. So, if nothing else today, you're going to get a peek inside of my mind. So for that, if you get freaked out, I'm sorry. But you're just going to get a sense of how, I, how I'm thinking through some of these things. And as I'm preparing these things, you'll see what I'm doing. Maybe hopefully that helps you critically think about what you're reading in Scripture. Another reason I'm doing this is we are being bombarded with false teachings. I don't know if you realize that or not. Um, next, in two weeks, Lord willing, I'll preach from the book of Jude. And what we're going to see in the book of Jude is we don't have a choice to not think about this, to not think about our faith, because as we get closer to the second coming of Christ, false teachers are going to pop up more and more and more. And as you see in Jude, they're not going to announce themselves. Jude says they've crept in unnoticed. So we need to be proactive in thinking about what we believe so we can combat them when they, do, when they show up. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18 reads, Therefore you, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now and to the day of eternity. And again, Paul writing to the Ephesians church says, He gave the teachers, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the teachers for a reason. That reason is so that we may attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. But there's a reason that Paul wants us to have that knowledge. It's so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waters and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Church, we need to be thinking about what it is that we believe so that when people question what we believe, when we have false doctrines coming to us, we can say, no, that's not right, and here's why. So I'm going to pray for us while we do this. I'm going to ask that while I'm doing this, somebody somewhere is praying for me. Last night I could not sleep, and I now believe as I was praying this morning and downstairs with Orn and Naomi praying, I do not believe the devil wants this said. And I'm going to tell you why. I read an article this past week that said the doctrine of creation is what we need to get back to so that the young people in the world can understand why they're here. Creation or evolution has been taught flippantly through the schools. And if you look at the issues that are in our culture and in our world today, it is because people believe that we have evolved from nothing. And we don't have a purpose. We don't have a reason to be here. We are autonomous. We can do whatever we like, whenever we like. So I'm going to pray over everything. I felt that this is not going to be easy. Um, Not that it's a hard doctrine to preach, but I don't believe the devil wants it out there. Um, So I'm going to pray over everything. Somebody, as we do this, just be praying, and we'll see where this goes. Father, as we come now to your word and we look at the doctrine of creation as you have uh, spelled out in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, but not only that, Lord, it is sprinkled throughout the entire Bible. That you are the ultimate creator of the universe. You are our creator. And because you've created us, we are accountable to you. Father, you've created us for a reason, for a purpose. And Lord, I believe that reason and that purpose has been lost on our culture. I believe it's being lost in the church. Not intentionally, but we believe it and we don't think about it and we don't recognize what happens when we lose this doctrine. So Father, I pray for the next several minutes as I speak that you would be with me, that you would give me strength to bring forth this truth, Lord, I bind the devil in whatever capacity he thinks he's here today. By your spirit, I just drive him from this place. And I pray that you would give me a peace to just bring this word and that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what it is that the doctrine of creation means to us, not only as believers, but to those that are outside the faith. I ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Doctrine of creation, I believe, is wrapped up in Genesis 1 through 3. Now, Genesis 1 through 3 is not all talking about creation. Genesis 1 is a broad overview, I believe. Genesis 2 zooms in on the creation of man and why we've been created. And Genesis 3 is the result of us not doing, of Adam not doing what it is that we and he was created to do. So when I say the doctrine of creation, I am talking about Genesis 1 through 3. So it's not just that God created, but why God created and what happens when we don't do what he's created us to do. So that's my doctrine of creation. But I ask you the question that's on the screen, have you ever considered what happens when you lose the doctrine of creation? What happens when evolution kind of makes its way into the schools, into our society, into our thinking, even this idea of theistic evolution? What happens when we take science 
and put it above Scripture. The theory of evolution, I believe, does more harm than we realize as a church, locally and universally, and I don't believe that we can just brush it aside. Like I said earlier, a lot of the issues that we are seeing in our culture today are, I believe, stemming from the loss of this doctrine. Before I go further, you're going to recognize I did not read any scripture yet. I'm not going to read through the, doctor, the, the account of Genesis 1 through 3. You can have it. You can read it. I have a lot of other scripture. I don't want to say that it's a waste of time to read that, but I can't spend the time reading it. What I believe is that when we lose the doctrine of creation, one of the first things that we must set aside is the inerrancy of Scripture. And this is why I believe that. The doctrine of creation is not just limited to Genesis. It is a biblical narrative that is either expressly or implicitly taught through Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. That God created was never a question in the biblical writer's mind. So what I have is a quick, very quick summary of 12 passages of Scripture that are expressly and explicitly teaching that God created. The first one is in Psalms 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him, for he spoke and it came to be. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. This is wisdom speaking. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work. Verse 26, before he had made the earth with its fields. In verse 29, when he had assigned to the deep sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. Ecclesiastes 12, 1. Remember also your creator. In the days of your youth. Isaiah describing the greatness of God. He has a series of, quota- of questions that he asks that are rhetorical. He says who in Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. And marked off the heavens with a span. Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure. And weighed the mountains in scales. And the hills in a balance. Isaiah knows the answer to these questions. We know the answer to those questions. It was God and God alone. That's just a set of rhetorical questions that Isaiah is asking. In the first five verses of Nehemiah 9, after confessing their sins, Nehemiah reads, You are the Lord alone. You have made the heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of the heaven worships you. In the opening verses of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the word, And the word was with God, and all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made. Again in verse 10, he is in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, from whom all things were for and whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we all and things and through whom we exist. Colossians 1.16 again says that for by him being Jesus, all things were created. Why do I do all that? That's not all 12 of them. 
why do I show 12 verses, six from the Old Testament, six from the New Testament? If God didn't create, and the Bible tells us that he did, we have a problem, because we have to either decide, is science right, is evolution right, or is the Bible right? And if evolution's right, I've got a total of 87 verses that explicitly teach that God created. If he didn't, I've got to throw them out. The problem is if I throw away scripture, what am I left to preach? The preaching of the word of God only works because it's the word of God. The word of God doesn't work because I stand up here and preach it. My preaching works only because this is the inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired word of God. If I don't have that, I'm not getting up here. I can't stand up here on my own authority. I don't have any. I'm granted it by the scripture and the scripture alone. So if we begin to lose the doctrine of creation, we have to start and we will lose the Bible. The second thing that we're going to lose if we lose the doctrine of creation is our distinctness, the distinctness of humanity. Why do I say that? If you know anything about evolutionary theory, they believe that, or it is taught, that we have come about by a primordial accident. And we've all evolved from one something some time ago. That means that when Genesis 1.27 says that we have been created in the Imago Dei, the image of God, we can't account for that in an evolutionary standpoint, from an evolutionary perspective. It is only scripture that teaches that God created and that God created us as humans distinct from the rest of the created order. So what does this mean? And I'll be honest, I studied what it means to be, in, to be made in the image of God for several hours this past week at the LBC library. I've read theological journals, I read systematic theology books, I read regular biblical theology books. I could not come to what I believed was a succinct answer on this. And why do I say that? Because I was getting things like it's because we have a capacity to reason, which I believe is true. I was reading things that said we have the ability to make moral judgments, which I believe that is true. Um, Still others believe that it is found in our ability to create just like God created us. Not in the same way, but we have the ability to be creative, to make things. Just look around in our world. We are technologically advanced and we have been granted the ability by God to create those things. But I don't think that's enough. I'm not saying that any of them are incorrect. I just don't think it encompasses everything that it means to be made in the image of God. So I read a 26-page paper, theological journal paper, from John Piper, printed in 1971. There was a lot of technical terms up in the, up in the front, up at the top of it, and all throughout it, and I was like, I can't just... This doesn't preach. Like, I'm going to have to explain every other word. I'm not going to do that. So I read down through, and I came to the very last paragraph of his paper, and I'm going to quote it for you. This is the definition that John Piper has at the end of his paper. What the full meaning of man's God-likeness is cannot be determined until all that man and God are is known. Man as man, complex, physical, spiritual being, in his wholeness, not his parts, is like God. 
It is not enough to say he reasons, nor is it enough to say he is addressed, for Satan too reasons and is addressed. Our definition of the Imago Dei must be broad, because the only sure statements we have about the Imago Dei are broad. The definition that I offer is this. The Imago Dei is that in man which constitutes him which constitutes him as he whom God loves. Now think about that. You are made in the image of God. That causes you to that causes God to love you in a way that he does not love creation, other parts of creation. And if you don't think that sounds right, think about the biblical narrative. We are the only created being that Christ came to die and save. God condescended from, from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ to save you and me, sinners, because you and I have been made in the image of God. Psalms 8, 3, and 4. This is David writing. He says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Have you ever tried to step away from yourself and really look at how insignificant we are in the grand scope of creation? Every once in a while, this reality hits me when I'm driving somewhere and I'm, you know, in your car and you're driving, you're passing signs and you, really, you, know, you, know, you feel pretty big and then you realize, well, no, if I look to the horizon, there's thousands of miles beyond that. I look to the sun and I realize it's, I don't even know how far it is away from us, but it's not measurable in much time at all. Um, but it is just, we are insignificant. This rock that we stand on is small in comparison to the universe. And then when you consider us on this rock that we stand on, we are nothing. But yet, we are created in the image of God, and because of that, Christ came and he died for us. You don't have that outside of a creation doctrine. Now, you may not think that's important, but just think about this. In an evolutionary standpoint, from an evolutionary or a creation-less worldview... Abortion makes sense, but humanitarian efforts don't. Now, if that doesn't rub you the right way, think about it. If we believe, and I'm not saying we believe this, but I'm saying the evolutionary standpoint believes this, that life is an accident. When a woman gets pregnant, it's just a mistake, and she has the ability to abort it. I'm not saying she does, but you've got to walk with me a little bit in this evolutionary mindset. You cannot ascribe to human beings worth and distinctness outside of a creation standpoint, creation worldview. Slavery, slavery, genocide, human rights violations of all kinds make sense when humans are no different or better than animals. And in a creationless worldview, that's what we are. I'm not saying I believe this like I've said a couple times. Please don't leave here and think that I'm believing that abortion is okay and that we're no different than the animals. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to think about 
what evolution actually means. What not being created and not being created in the image of God means. And this is why I believe that the devil doesn't want this heard because I believe that that worldview, the evolution worldview, is from the devil. He wants people trapped in a purposeless, meaningless state. There's no reason you're here. There's no purpose you're here. Your life has no meaning. And that's where he wants you. And that's where he has the culture at large. And it is because we are losing the doctrine of creation. But not only do we lose our common worth with the loss of creation, we lose our common need. What do I mean by that? Adam on the sixth day was created and given a, ma- and given a command. Genesis, you read it first in Genesis 1, 28 through 30. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. But then in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, again, Genesis 2 is the zoomed in view of the creation of man on the sixth day. He said, you may surely eat, this is another command from God to Adam, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in it, the day that you eat, you shall surely die. Two commands that Adam was given. Multiply and subdue the earth and don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's all he had to do. Now what it means to subdue the earth, we have seen played out through the course of history. But that were, those were the two commands that Adam was given. Adam was created to obey God in these two areas. And God, as the creator, has the right to command Adam to do whatever he, the creator, chooses. Because he's the creator. If Adam had obeyed God and every, if Adam had obeyed God, and every time that we as God's people obey God, we bring him glory. So this gets me to what I said earlier. We have been created to bring glory to God by commanding or by obeying his commands. That is the first and most and best way that we can show glory to God is by obeying him. And I was trying to think of a really good story that would bring this out. And I think the story of Saul in 1 Samuel 15 brings that out. So in 1 Samuel 15, we read that thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came, out, came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. That was a command given to Saul as king of Israel through Samuel. That's what he was supposed to do. Do you know what Saul does? Everything he's commanded, right? He brings glory to God by doing everything he's commanded and the rest of 1 Samuel 15, there's nothing to read. No, that's not what Saul did. If you jump down to verse 7, Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive 
and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Now, Saul thinks he's doing God a favor in this, and if you keep reading, he's keeping these, this good of the, the best of the sheep, the best of the oxen. He's holding all of that back because he's going to offer it as a sacrifice to God. And if you read through the Old Testament, God does delight in our sacrifices. The problem is, if you look at 1 Samuel 15, 22 through 23, Samuel says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Basically what Samuel is saying is, yes, God does delight in sacrifices. God does want your sacrifices. But he wants your obedience first. And he wants your obedience over and above the sacrifices. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because if you have rejected, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Well, think back to what happened in the garden. Adam rebelled against God in not keeping from eating of the fruit. And what does God do? He kicks him out of the garden. You have rejected the, Lord, the word of the Lord, and he has also rejected you from being king. Adam was king of the garden when he was standing in it. And just like God rejected Saul as king of Israel for not obeying his commands, he rejected Adam as king and caretaker of the garden, and he kicked him out. Now, you might think, well, what does this have to do with us? We're pretty good at obeying the commands of God. Adam was what is called our federal head. In him, we all sin. That's what Paul means in Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam sinned, we sinned. If you look at Genesis 3, God places a curse on all of us. He places a curse on Adam, and that flows down to us, because in Adam all sinned. But none of this makes sense if we're not created. If we just happen to show up, we're not accountable to anyone. It is only because that we have been created can God hold us accountable. We owe our existence to him, therefore we need to submit to his authority. We need to be obedient to his word and to his commands. So this brings us to the final truth that I believe we, lead, we lose. And the problem is this is the most important one because it's the one that saves us from what we've just heard. And that's the gospel of Jesus. If you were downstairs at class at all within the last three months, you have heard us talk about, um, you would have heard the gospel summed up in four words, God, man, Christ response. The first one is God. God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. He is perfectly holy, worthy of all of our worship, and will punish sin.
Worthy are you, O God, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Paul talking to us, he says, But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So that is who God is. That is what God is doing. Then we come to the doctrine of man. All of us, though created good initially in Adam, have become sinful by nature. So from birth, we are all alienated from God, hostile to God, and subject to the wrath of God. David in Psalms 51, in Psalm 51, 5 writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That is all of us. Because Adam disobeyed the word of God, we have all sinned. We have all gone against the reason that we have been created. In the Westminster Shorter, uh, Shorter Catechism, the very first question is, what is the chief end of man? To which the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We don't glorify God all the time. As much as we'd like to think we do, we don't. Anytime we do anything out of a selfish ambition, anytime we do something because we're going to get something out of it, anytime we don't sacrifice for our spouses the way we should sacrifice for our spouses, we are not glorifying God. So now we have God as the holy and righteous creator who will judge sin and who will show no impartiality. We come to man and we find that we are in a position where we can do absolutely nothing. We have no righteousness within ourselves. That brings us to Christ. Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man, lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear God's wrath in the place of all who would believe in him, and rose from the grave in order to give his people eternal life. That's the gospel message. That's the first three points of the gospel message. You have God. You have man. You have Christ. Now what's your response? God is calling all of us to repent of our sins. To trust in Christ in order to be saved. In Acts 20, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses 
and is saved. All of that, everything that I've just said, wrapped up in the doctrine of creation. Do you see now why it's important that we don't lose that? Why we can't just brush aside evolution? Why we can't just say, yeah, it's, you know, it's all right if you believe that way. It's not okay if you believe that way. We have just lost. You will lose everything I've just said. Go home and think about it. If you want this transcript, I will give you this transcript so you can sit and read and see all of the other scriptures that I have. This is not just some doctrine that we can wash under and sweep under the rug. This is the very reason that you and I are here. This is the very reason that Christ came to die. God created us to be holy. We're not. We need Jesus. What's your response? Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this doctrine of creation and we've realized that you have created us for one purpose and that is to glorify you in everything that we say and do. And Lord, to recognize that we as sinful human beings in Adam and in ourselves have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory that you call us to. And Lord, we've come to a point And by your spirit, I pray that you bring us all to a point where we realize that there is absolutely nothing that we as individuals can do to bring us from that point of rebellion. Whether it's active rebellion, indifference, whatever it is, Father, we are actively involved in rebellion against you apart from the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I thank you for sending your Son. Father, I, Jesus, I thank you for, for being willing to come to suffer the humility at the hands of the very ones you were dying to save. And Father, now as we consider this, as we consider the doctrine of creation, as we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that you will bring us to a point of repentance. That if anyone here does not know you, Father, that your spirit would break their hard heart. That you would show them that they, like the rest of us, are at a place of hopelessly and desperately needing your son. And Father, that we would repent of the sins and that we would embrace Jesus Christ in faith alone. That we would work through that faith and in that faith to be transformed into the image of your Son. Father, I pray that in the church we never lose this doctrine of creation and that we fight with all diligence by the power of the Spirit of God to keep it and to understand exactly what it means for every human being. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.